0: Christotelic hermeneutics. Our minds have been spinning. Uh, Maybe we'll spin them a little more. And uh, we appreciate uh, Blake's ministry here over the years and his writing ministry. Please check out a number of the books that are back there, a couple of fresh titles as well. He is right now associate pastor at Mills Road Baptist Church in Houston, Texas with his wife Alicia and two little ones and rejoicing in fatherhood and husband and all the other blessed things God's brought into his life. And we're grateful for Blake. So please come, brother. Well, it's great to be here, great to see you, but I'm excited and grateful to share uh, an exercise with you, an exercise in Christotelic hermeneutics, not for the foolish and slow of heart, from Luke 24, as we'll see. So we, as evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, gospel-believing Christians, are all about Jesus, and we, in particular, as New Covenant theologians, are all about Jesus, and his centrality. And now all stripes of evangelicals, thankfully and truly, claim and desire to be Christ-centered. But in my humble opinion, New Covenant theology is most consistently Christ-centered. So where other views may tend to be more covenant-centered or more Israel-centered, we need and we want to be Christ-centered in all things, because the Bible is Christ-centered. Jesus is the Alpha and omega of history, and he's the alpha and omega of the Bible. All inscripturated paths lead to Jesus. His person and his work is the central message. As a friend of mine recently put it, we all need to be KJV-only people preaching from one version of the Bible, but he went on to uh, define it as the King Jesus version, and it's unfaithful to preach any other version. So I want to show you this in some measure this afternoon. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Luke 24. Before we go there, I want to read a a few programmatic verses before we get started. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So what we see is God the Father is Christ-centered. You remember the famous hymn in Philippians where he's concluding the exhortation, and he says, Therefore God has highly exalted the Son and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow, and every in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess Jesus is Lord, and it redounds to the glory of God the Father. It is God's will that Christ be central, and it redounds to his glory. So to be God-centered is to be Christ-centered. Colossians 1.16, For by him, that's Jesus, By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. All things. I mean, I wonder, do you view creation this way? All things in creation were created for the Son. The whole world is a spoken stage. World history is God's novel because he created from nothing, ex nihilo. That being the case, everything in the creation has an artistic touch, and we learn from Colossians 1 that it's for the Son. All of the created, all of the many-splendored glory of creation is going to be presented as a gift from the Father to the Son. It's all through Him, it's all for Him, from the snowflake, to great white sharks, to taste buds, to puppies, to mountains, to mountain goats, all of God's creativity is for the Son, this verse tells us. Kuiper was right. There's not a square inch on planet earth where Christ does not say mine. It's all for him. It's all for him. So let's look at Luke 24. Familiar passage. And just recall the context there, 13 and following. Uh, We won't read it all for the sake of time, but you remember there's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes, and uh, they don't recognize him. And he asks them what's going on, and they say, Oh, you don't know what's happening lately? What's, what's the deal? Where have you been? And Jesus is just playing along with them and speaks and asks them, and they tell him, well, about Jesus and this one who they thought was going to restore Israel, and he died and he's been raised. Now look at verses 25 to 27. Now Jesus says, O foolish ones and slow of hearts, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. And then he goes and he shows up. He ends up revealing himself and he comes to the disciples. Look at verse 32. The disciples, the two still say, Did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Now skim down to verse 44. Again, Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So it's, he's not saying that every single thing or every single story in the Old Testament is about Jesus, but he's saying it all leads to him. Hence the title, Christotelic. And I'm, I'm using this from an Old Testament scholar named Peter Enns, which I don't recommend his writing, but I like the title, so I want to give, you, give credit where credit's due. I stole it from him. Christotelic, in the sense that we read the Old Testament already knowing that Christ is somehow the end, the telos to which the Old Testament story is heading. In other words, to read the Old Testament in light of the exclamation point of the history of Revelation, which is the death and resurrection of Christ. So in other words, one of the the heartbeats of New Covenant theology, reading the Old Testament in light of the New Testament, is to read it Christotelically. So don't you just wish you could have been there to hear Jesus open up the Scriptures and see how he unpacked all the scriptures and showed how they point to himself. Well in a sense we can be there. We have the material don't we? We can learn and see what Jesus did by sitting at the feet of the apostles and see how they interpreted the Old Testament because they learned from Jesus. So I want to show you what I think it might have looked like this afternoon and we're going to do a lot of reading of scripture which is a good thing because Paul emphasizes and exhorts Timothy to devote himself to the public reading of scripture. So you leaders, I hope you incorporate this in your morning services, reading scripture. If not, repent and start doing it next week. And so we're going to do a lot of, so I encourage you just to listen and I'll tell you when we're going to turn to a place, because we're going to go quickly and we're going to see a lot of uh, passages this morning. Jesus is better. So with the Old Testament storyline, of course, we start with creation, the all-important starting and eschatology begins at creation eschatology begins in Genesis 1-1. The whole Bible is eschatological, and we tend to think of eschatology as those things way far off in the future. Things like the rapture, and is it pre-trib, is it mid-trib, is it post-trib, or the lack thereof, or the millennium and the nature of the millennium and final judgment and all those things, and that's true. But if this is the only thing we think of when we think about eschatology, this is a misunderstanding of biblical eschatology. As Greg Beal notes, normally eschatology is found at the end of our New Testament and Systematic Theology textbooks, and he thinks that it's so important and so central that it ought to be in the title, not at the end of the book. I think he's right. He defines it as the movement toward the new creational reign, and that movement began at creation. Creation already points to new creation in the Bible. William D'Umbrell similarly defines eschatology as, quotes, "...the goal of history toward which the Bible moves, and of biblical factors and events bearing on that goal." End quote. So creation occurred because God knew he would send a Redeemer to save a people who would inhabit the new creation. In the beginning, God. That's why in John 1.1 we have the echo of the creation narrative. "...in the beginning was the Word." So creation points to the new creation where Christ will be king. And we keep moving. Jesus is the better Adam. This is fascinating. Adam was created, in a sense, in part, to point to the last Adam. In creating Adam, the Father had already planned to send the last Adam. We have that teaching all throughout the Bible. Flip over to Luke chapter 3. And here's a place where our chapter dividers betray us a tad because you'll notice there at 323 and following we have the genealogy. And I just want to pick it up in verse 34 and let's read on, ignoring the chapter division there in chapter 4. Verse 34 the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And he ends his genealogy with Adam, unlike Matthew, and it's significant. He calls him the son of God, and then the next literary narrative starts with Jesus and his temptation. Notice your subheading there, the temptation of Jesus. So I think Luke literarily is making a, tex- a connection between Adam and his temptation and the last Adam and his temptation. Adam was tempted in the garden and fell, but the last Adam was victorious. Jesus recapitulated Adam's testing in the garden in his own desert experience. What we have here is an Eden rerun, and the last Adam doesn't blow it. First Adam brought us down, the last Adam brings us up. Most clearly connected in Romans 5. Go ahead and turn there as well. very familiar passage. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sins. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where. There is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type, tupos, of the one who was to come. But the free gifts If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We see that the last Adam came to reverse the curse of the first Adam. He came to undo all that Adam did wrong. In 1 Corinthians, we have the parallel again, chapter 15. As an Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Adam, the unfaithful representative of all humanity, points to the last Adam, the faithful representative of the new humanity. He's the better Adam. He's the true image. Mankind was made in the image of God. Jesus Christ is the image of God. He's the way all humans were supposed to be. So in our, in our own transformation, in our renewal, And our conformity to Christ, we're actually becoming what we were meant to be. We're becoming more and more truly human. Part of our growth in Christ is Jesus, by the Spirit, restoring our humanity. He's the true image. And, of course, you remember what God did in the the garden. They became ashamed because of their nakedness after the fall, but God provided a covering. But, of course, blood had to be spilt. An animal had to be sacrificed. Pointing again to the sacrifice God would make to cover our shame and clothe us with Christ. Still in the creation narrative, God promised that a seed of the woman would, though his heel would be bruised, would ultimately crush the head of the serpent. Who is this seed of the woman who destroyed evil, though and through being bruised? Hebrews 2 tells us Jesus, Jesus, through death, defeated death, and he defeated the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Jesus is the better Noah. You recall God promised to never destroy the earth again. And you remember the sign of the covenant. It was a a rainbow or it was a bow. And notice what direction it's pointing. It's pointing up. The bow is pointing up and it's pointed at God. And in this there's an implied self-maledictory oath in the bow that's pointing towards him. God is laying down his weapon of war and pointing it to himself. So God himself will take the hits before he gives up on his people, before he's unfaithful to his part of the covenant. So when you see the rainbow, think of the cross. God in the flesh redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. God keeps his promise. Jesus is the better Abraham. You recall the Abraham narrative of Genesis 12 and following. Uh, He's promised land, seed, and blessing in chapter 12. And then in 15, recall the covenant ceremony. You recall that uh, Abraham was doubting, and so God gives him a vision. And, and we've learned from Jeremiah and ancient Near Eastern practices that the, the, the ceremony was, was very significant on the terms of the covenant. So what would happen is have different animals would come. They would get the animals, and they would, they would cut them in half. So it was a pretty bloody ceremony. They would cut the animals in half and put them... Make a walkway so that each party of the covenant would walk through. That's, that's how it would go. The suzerain would walk through. The vassal would walk through. And they're saying, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, if I don't keep my commitment, if I don't keep my end of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. You and your armies come and leave me and my people like this. And you recall the vision, right? Abram's sleeping. And God, in the form of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch, passes through the animals alone. You know, that's, that's sovereign grace. You want to talk about sovereign grace, let's go to the Abraham narrative first. It's in that moment, again, an implied self-maledictory oath. God is saying, if I don't keep my end, may, may I end up like this? The other party is just snoozing. Again, in that moment, in that moment is where the death sentence of Jesus was pronounced. As, as God symbolically passes through the, the animals, the death sentence of Jesus was pronounced. The blessing of Abraham, in part, is God making good on his promise of a seed that will come from the woman in Genesis 3. So we see that the curse will be reversed through a seed of the woman who is also a seed of Abraham. God also promises that the nations will be blessed through this Abraham in chapter 12. But how? How will they be blessed is the question, and we learn later from Romans 4 and Galatians 3 how... We read Genesis 12 in light of Genesis fifteen six, a very programmatic verse for the apostle, which says this, And he believed the Lord, Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So how will the nations be blessed? They'll be blessed by believing and being given a righteous status. Another way to say it is how will the nations be blessed? They're going to be blessed through justification by faith. I'm excited about Dr. Schreiner's talks. So we've got to continue uh, to uphold and proclaim this glorious gospel, this glorious doctrine, because I see in my generation it's just not on the radar anymore. Uh, who knows the reasons, but we've got to continue to say that the heart of the gospel is justification by faith alone. This is where Luther was right. Uh, you know, the way, there's a lot of, lot of talk about what the gospel is today in evangelicalism, and, and slowly but surely in younger generations and, and more. More folks that are sympathetic with the emerging movement, more sympathetic to postmodern culture that say, you know, we're no longer a guilt-based culture. So justification by faith doesn't communicate to people today. Well, we've got to say baloney. It does. It absolutely does. And we've got to use, uh, continue to proclaim the gospel as it's revealed. Right here we learn that the nations, the Abrahamic promise that the nations will be blessed comes through being granted a righteous status. And it's made explicit in Galatians 3. Galatians 3 says this. 3.8, 3, eight, and the scripture, so here's the subject, and the scripture, and then Paul adds a participle, and he's going to modify the main verb, so listen, listen how he words it. The scripture, participle, modifying it, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, back to the main verb, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So what does it mean for the scripture to preach the gospel? It means that it foresaw that God would justify. So there there's almost an equation of the gospel with justification by faith. So that's important. We've got to keep that to the forefront. So the promises to Abraham are ultimately pointing to Christ's crosswork. Sinners are declared in the right because of Christ dying in our place on the cross. That's how the nations are blessed. God keeps his promises. Aren't you thankful God keeps his promises? Most of you in here are Gentiles. And the reason you're here, the reason you're here and you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord is because God made a promise to Abraham. That's why you're here. We, we need to, that's oftentimes not on our radar. And here's one place where the new perspective maybe has reminded us. We need to cultivate in our own hearts gratitude for Gentile inclusion. It's, it's the direct result of forgiveness of sins. Gentile inclusion, we are saved by the, Israel, the Israel's Messiah, unbelievable. God keeps his promises, unlike us. I mean, what is it, April? Most of you have already blown your New Year's resolutions, probably two months ago. We're so fickle. Not God, though. God's a promise-keeping God. He is the promise-keeper. And so we learn that we're children of Abraham by being included in the singular seed of Abraham. We'll speak more of Galatians 3.16. That means we share in the inheritance. We've seen from Colossians 1 that ultimately the Son will inherit the whole cosmos, redeemed, and we're co-heirs with Christ because we're children of Abraham, co-heirs of the universe. Jesus is the better Isaac. Isaac's father merely raised the knife, but Jesus' father brought it down on him so that it wouldn't have to come down on us. Jesus is the better Joseph. Joseph, you remember, goes through a period of trial, a period of suffering. He rejects temptation, then is exalted, and brings blessing to the nations, to Egypt. And he brings blessing to the very brothers who betrayed him. Similarly, Christ is faithful when tempted. He suffers, he's exalted, and he brings salvation to Jews and Gentiles, to the nations, He stands at the right hand of the throne, much like Joseph did to Pharaoh, and he brings salvation to the very ones who betrayed him, which is us. God justifies the ungodly. He's the greater Judah. the end of the book of Genesis, we read this in Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So see the rule language, the kingship language until tribute comes to him, until, and to him shall be the obedience of the nations. So you notice the, the line is narrowing. We had this seed of the woman that would come and crush the head of the serpent, and it's narrowed down, it's going to be a child of Abraham, and it's even narrowed down more, he's going to be in the line of Judah. A seed of the woman will come and defeat evil. One who's a seed of Abraham, the line of Judah, and he'll be a king. Way back in chapter 17 of Genesis, God promised Abraham and Sarah the kings would come from them. God's working out his purposes. Jesus is the line of the tribe of Judah. He is the king of kings. He is Judah's offspring. Jesus is the true Israel. Continuing in the storyline, we see this especially in in the gospel according to Matthew. Unlike Luke's genealogy, Matthew still has a Jewish thrust to it. So Luke contrasts the temptations of Adam and the last Adam, while Matthew contrasts the temptation of Israel in the wilderness and the temptation of the true Israel. So God's son, God's firstborn son, Israel, Exodus 4.22, was tested for 40 years in the wilderness and failed. God's eternal son was tempted in the desert for 40 days and was victorious. He lived by the theology of Deuteronomy that Israel should have. So in many ways, Israel is just a new corporate Adam, aren't they? A new corporate Adam. Both are failures, but the last Adam and the true Israel is faithful. So Jesus is the true Israel. He sums up Israel's history in himself. We see it in Matthew. Flip over to Matthew. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. We have a Genesis. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, literally, Biblos Geneseos, the book of Genesis. So we have a Genesis in Jesus' history. We have an Exodus. Look at Matthew two fifteen. Look, we'll read fourteen and fifteen. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets out of Egypt. I called my son. So you have an exodus. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. You have another passing of the waters. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending. So you have this parting of the water. You have a sea crossing. In chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, the sea crossing, the baptism of Jesus. You have a desert temptation that we've pointed out both in Luke and Matthew. We have a Deuteronomy. Remember the arrival at Sinai and giving of the law, and in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, before Jesus gives his sermon on the mount, gives his instruction, we have verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. So we have a Deuteronomy. We have a Joshua in the Gospel of Matthew. You have exorcism of alien forces. You have feedings in the wilderness in the life history of Jesus. Think John 6. We have healings. You have a royal ministry. He's ruling and reigning. You have a prophetic ministry. Then you have an exile, the cross. Then you have a restoration, the resurrection. So Jesus sums up Israel's history in himself. Israel was pictured as a vine in Isaiah 5, and Jesus in John 15 says, I am the vine. In Galatians 3.16, is crystal clear, Paul says, that the promises were not made to Abraham's seeds, plural, but to his seed or offspring, singular, that is Jesus. Jesus is the singular seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham or the offspring of Abraham is another way of speaking of Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. He brings Israel's history to completion. Jesus brings about the true exodus. True and greater Exodus. Look over at uh, Luke chapter 9. Read 30 and 31. I'm reading out of the ESV. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. If your Bible, uh, like mine, has a footnote, mine's footnote 1. You look down at number 1 in the footnotes and read Greek Exodus. So let's reread it. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke about his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus speaks of his departure. The freeing of the Israelites, of course, was the, the huge redemptive event in Israel's history from Egyptian slavery, was meant to point to what would come and was greater, the greater exodus, We've been freed. We as believers have been freed. We're no longer enslaved to sin, Satan, and death. We've been redeemed. We've, the new exodus has occurred. Jesus brings about what the law always pointed to. You know, we're, we're fond of talking about in our circles that the law was prophetic. Matthew eleven thirteen, 13, it prophesied until John. The law itself was prophetic. It bore witness, Romans 3, 21, and Christ is the telos namu. The end of the law, most translations. I like the new NIV has the culmination of the law because it gets at both the end of the law and the goal of the law, much like Douglas Moo gives the analogy of a race. uh, The finish line is both the end of the race and the goal of the race. So is Christ to the law. The end of the law and the goal of the law. He's the culmination of the law. He brings about what it pointed to. Jesus is the better Moses, the better prophet you familiar with Deuteronomy 18? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you, from your brothers. It's to him you shall listen. And that should sound very familiar to us because in Matthew 17 we read, Jesus was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus is the end-time prophet. Jesus is the final revelation. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, literally, in Son. By his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also He made the universe. So as the new covenant people of God, we do not look first to Moses, but first to Christ, the final eschatological prophet. Jesus is the inaugurator of the new covenant. Recall in Exodus 32, you remember after the golden calf incident, God comes in judgments, and 3,000 were killed in judgment. In many ways, Pentecost inaugurates the new covenant, and Peter's preaching, and it says that there were added that day 3,000 souls. God's undoing the curse through Jesus Christ and his person and his work. Remember the serpent of Moses. You remember the story where the Lord sent snakes to his impatient people, and he made a, Moses made a snake of bronze, lifted it up, and you look to the snake and you live. Set it on a pole and said, look to the snake and you will live. John three fourteen and 17. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is the one we look to for life. Jesus is the true and better Job, the one who, though innocent, suffers immensely. And when it's all over, he still prays and is sympathetic towards his idiotic friends. Jesus is the great high priest. And we learn that he's not only a high priest, not a Levitical priest, he's the priest in the order of Melchizedek. And if you're not familiar with the argument in Hebrews, it's 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 fantastic. Hebrews, the way the author of Hebrews argues is uh, in a way that New Covenant theology argues. And what he's saying is that, The Old Covenant, on its own terms, shows its obsolescence. So if you're a careful reader of the Old Testament, you should know something better is coming. And he uses the Psalms this way. Think of the way, if you recall, in Hebrews 3 and 4, how he uses Psalm 95 today, speaking of rest. Hebrews 7, you have the priesthood argument, where Psalm 110 speaks of this coming priest. Then Hebrews 8, of course, he uses Jeremiah 31. There No longer will things be the way they are. There's a covenant coming, and it's not like the one given before, not like the Old Covenant. And Hebrews 7 is where we see Jesus is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, if you were a careful, careful reader of the Old Testament Bible, occurs early on, Genesis 14, and and Abraham blesses him. We see that he's superior, Hebrews shows us, he's superior to Abraham because of the relationship, and he falls off the map. For a very long time. And then we have Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, and the, the careful Jewish reader should scratch the head. Wait a minute. This is the king. This is King David. The sub, the superset tells us that, and Jesus tells us that in Matthew 22. David wrote it. So David is speaking of a Lord. Who would this be? So they should have scratched their head. And it says that this priest is coming. He's going to be a Lord. He's going to be a king, and he's going to be a priest. But you couldn't be a king priest in the Old Covenant. But this one would be a king and a priest. And there are hints. Adam was a king priest. There are hints in Isaiah 6 where you see this later, John tells us it's Jesus. And he's in the temple, priestly aspect, and he's on the throne, kingly aspect. This coming priest king in the order of Melchizedek And Hebrews tells us it's Jesus. He's our great high priest. He's the priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's a priest not on the basis of his ancestry, but on the basis of an indestructible life. Unlike the Levites, this one holds his priesthood permanently. He has no need to atone for his own sin like the other priests. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is the final sacrifice. Flip to Isaiah 53, another beloved and familiar passage. The Mount Everest of Old Testament prophecy. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray we've turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent so he opened not his mouth. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I don't even have to make a comment. Written as if it was beneath the cross of Golgotha. He's our sacrifice. He's the suffering servant. We are forgiven. He's the priest. He's the priest and the suffering servant. He prays for and provides for his people he atones for and intercedes for those whom the father has given him Jesus is the true and better david you know I, I hope you know this but oftentimes david is is taught in a very moralistic way much of the old testament is taught in a very moralistic way i recently saw a blog post and it was said something like your old testament sermon needs to be saved and the idea was if the Old Testament is abused, it can turn into just moralism rather than gospel preaching. And this is the case with so much Sunday school literature. Beware of Sunday school literature. So much Sunday—I'm running into this a lot as my son's two, and we're, we get a lot of gifts, you know. Uh, people know we're Christians. And I'm a pastor, so we get a lot of Christian books and Christian DVDs. Uh, so I'm having to wade through a lot of it. And a lot, so much of it is just simply moralism. Moralism is needed, or not moralism, but moral teaching is needed, but we've got to be careful. The message isn't be good. Be good, be like Jesus. The message is you're not good. You can't be good. Jesus is good. Find your goodness in him. And that, that's a small, subtle differentiation, but it's vital. It's so vital. So the message of David is not dare to be a David. Think about who are we in the story of David. We're not David. We want to be David. We always want to be the hero, right? We're not David in the story, though. No, we're the cowardly Israelites. And David risks his life to win the battle for the cowards. Jesus, the better David, went against greater giants than David went against sin and Satan. But he didn't go risking his life. He went at the cost of his life. God promises David a son in Second Samuel 7 who will have an everlasting kingdom. And this son is an offspring of Abraham in the line of Judah. David's greater son is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. The curse is being reversed by the seed of the woman. Jesus is wiser than Solomon. Jesus is the true temple. The temple was so important in in Judaism. It's the place where heaven and earth overlapped. It's where the footstool, where God rested his feet. It's where God dwelt in fullness. It's where God met his people. In John 1, the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled among us. Even clearer in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Speaking about the temple of his body, Jesus is the true temple. He is where the fullness of God is found. He is where heaven and earth now connect. He's where people gain access to God through him. Jesus is the better king. You remember Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 17 the four kingship is laying out some laws for future kings. And they're, they're pretty simple, actually. Only he must not acquire many horses, many wives, nor excessive silver and gold. He shall make a copy of the Torah, and he shall read it. But it's funny how Solomon, it's almost like Solomon, goes out and says, Okay, one, two, three, four, five requirements. I think I'm going to see how I can turn all of those on their head. And goes directly contrary to all that was expected of kings. But not Jesus. Jesus is the faithful king. He's the righteous ruler. Daniel 7 gives a vision of a son of man who ascends to the right hand of God and is given all authority. Jesus' favorite way of talking about himself, son of man. And then he commissions his disciples at the end of Matthew. And it says all authority, same Greek word in the Greek Old Testament as in Daniel 7, all authority has been given, same verb in the Greek Old Testament, to me. He is the son of man, the one with the everlasting authority, and kingdom. Jesus is where we find rest. Flip back to Matthew chapter 11. Again, our chapter divisions betray us. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find Rest. Your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And notice the subheading of the next section that is intentionally placed after Jesus' call to come and find rest in Him. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He is where we find rest. Hebrews 4 8 If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from His works. As God did from him. So we find rest in Christ. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is the unique bearer and bestower of the Spirit. We find this in several prophecies. Let me read three or two of them. Isaiah 11 speaks of this one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Later on in Isaiah, in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servants, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nation. So there's this one who will uniquely bear the Spirit, and he will pour out the Spirit. And we learn from John's gospel in particular, John 15, 26, when the helper comes, I will send him to you from the Father. John 16, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus is a unique bearer of the Spirit, and he's the unique bestower of the Spirit. And just a footnote for those interested in historical theology. This is why the filioque clause is, is true. Filioque clause meaning and from the Son that the West added. They may not have been as careful as they should have been in adding it to the Nicene Creed in the 6th century, but it is true. It has biblical teaching. The Son sends the Spirit from the Father. So this the, the Jews should have been looking for this age of the Messiah, this Messiah who would come and would bear the Spirit and would pour out the Spirit. The the new age would be the age of the Messiah and the age of the Spirit. The pouring out of the Spirit was the evidence that the new age had invaded the present age, and it's the guarantee that it would be consummated. This is why the gift of the Spirit is called the down payments or the guarantee. The metaphor is that there's a purchaser who would offer the first in the installment, a portion of the whole, and it was money that could be spent now, but it was also a promise of the future completion of the transaction. Romans 8 speaks of the Spirit as the first fruits. The resurrection is called the first fruits oftentimes. Three things to note about the first fruits, the metaphor of the first fruits. It comes first, temporality, it becomes before the rest. It represents the same quality or the same character of the rest, and it's a promise or a pledge of more of the same. To come. So, the first fruits were a real part of the harvest that could be enjoyed now with a with promise of more to come. So, the Messiah and the Spirit, his sins are the fulfillment of God's eschatological promises and the down payment of our certain future. So, we see that again, eschatology, we've, if we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, we've got to talk about eschatology. Because the Spirit is the gift of the Spirit in the new age. I was recently reading a the most recent treatment of the Spirit I read in a theology text. It was big. It was thorough. It was about 80 pages. And there was virtually no reference to the eschatological nature of the gift of the Spirit. And there was no mention of, of Voss, of Gaffin, of Ritterboss, even of Ferguson, more contemporary. But this, this particular person is not of a Reformed stripe, so I can kind of understand that. And this is, this is a good point, to, uh, a good time to, to piggyback on what, what Steve's talk was about. This whole idea of Christotelic hermeneutics, biblical theology, typology, predictive prophecy, it presupposes a certain type of God. He has ordered history around his purposes. It presupposes a certain view of freedom. How can God make good on all these things? How can God build upon what He's done? How can Adam point? All these things presupposes a certain view of sovereignty, a certain view of freedom. In other words, put it bluntly, typology presupposes Calvinism. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I appreciate the good work, Steve. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm actually in transition and uh, going to be uh, pursuing a PhD at a school that's not uh, not fr- put it. To underestimate it, not friendly to the doctrines of grace. So it's going to be a lot of interesting conversations with uh, professors, but particularly with students. And this is the way way we need to go. This kind of work needs to be done. So rather than coming in and saying, yeah, I believe in the doctrines of grace or what do you think about election, I'm going to speak of freedom and get into discussion that way. So if someone asks what are my views, I'm going to say I'm a compatibilist for a whole host of reasons. For this reason here. A coherent view of predictive prophecy, a coherent view of typology, or even, just take it a step further, a consistent coherent view of inerrancy presupposes a certain view of sovereignty and freedom. If libertarian freedom were true, God couldn't guarantee that the human authors would not err. So, so I want to be balanced here. Um, I'm so thankful for so many Arminians that affirm and defend the inerrancy of Scripture. Praise God. As Steve mentioned, there could be worse positions. But I have to say, it's a little bit inconsistent. Um, libertarian freedom is inconsistent with inerrancy. We think about 2 Peter no prophecy was produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, the Holy Spirit moving them along. So it, it presupposes a certain view of God. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over history. He's guided human authors to reveal that Jesus Christ is the center. He's the center of the universe. He's the center of the Bible. All the Old Testament persons, events, and institutions were designed by God to point to his son, to point to Jesus. He's central. He's the end of all things. He's the purpose of it all. This is the purpose of our existence as well. So we need to be Christ-centered in how we interpret the Bible. This has a lot of implications that we talk about at this conference. Probably we'll talk about more. Systematic theological implications. But I want to encourage you to make this the purpose of your existence as well. You exist to glorify Christ. Don't forget that. It's so easy to get caught up in routines, isn't it? You go to the grocery store, you barely make eye contact with a person, you do your thing, you have children, you have marriage, and you just—you just, Satan lulls us to sleep. So let's wake up. Christ is central, and he needs to be central in our life. And all you do, all you do, the way you date your wife, date your girlfriend, the way you talk, the way you parent, the way you work, the way you leisure, everything, is to make much of Jesus. There is to be no compartmentalization for those who confess that Jesus is Lord. The confession that Jesus is Lord has all kinds of implications. As Schaeffer said long ago, if he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. So cultivate a Christ obsession. Look for him in the word. Talk about him all the time. Talk about him with Christian friends. We get in a pattern where we don't even speak of Jesus at church among our Christian friends. Talk about him all the time. Talk about him with your lost neighbors and family. Become Christ consumed, Christ obsessed. Do everything, everything, everything you do to make Christ shine. Align yourself with God's purpose. And I hope I've shown in some part God's purpose is to sum up all things in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we've already heard that the prayer from Augustine grants what you command. Lord, I pray that you would help us to approach the Bible, to approach theology, but especially all of our nitty-gritty details of daily life. Lord, help us to take every thought, even, captive to the obedience of Christ. Help us to keep Jesus' lenses firmly in place as we look at all things, Lord, for your glory. This is the goal. This is the motive of every person in here. We want to make Christ shine, and we ask for your help. Thank you for revealing these things to us. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for the promise that you will continue to will and to work uh, and complete what you started. We pray it in Christ's name for his sake. Amen.